You are listening to Space Time Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Captain's Log. I'm tired. So tired. I can't believe my own partner attacked me. Maybe if I occupy his mind with more duties, I can control his space madness. Government agents. Scientists. Soldiers. Master criminals. Secret formulas. Monsters and midgets. None of them belong in this swamp. Only one thing does. The Swamp Bear. Somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. In space! So, uh, hello everybody, welcome to Space Time Mind, and uh, I'm Pete Mandic. With us today is also Richard Brown. That's kind of... That's kind of the usual. I think people expect that at this point. <laughs> but what they might not expect is that we also have with us a very special guest, Eric Schwitzgable. Welcome hey. to Space Time Mind, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being had. <laughs> we, man, we're going to tear you up. <laughs> wow, this got ugly quick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're in our clutches. <laughs> Just because I said some slightly skeptical things about materialism. Yeah. Also, I'm not sure, uh, you know, about your patriotism. <laughs> You're like, maybe the USA is conscious. And I'm like, USA is the most conscious. <laughs> USA. USA. All right. Yeah, I do also compare it to the intelligence of a rabbit, so... Uh... <laughs> well, you know, rabbits are pretty cool. Uh, I hadn't quite thought about it that way, Eric. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, rabbits are okay. So, yeah, um, I'm good with rabbits. So, you know, we'll we'll uh, when this uh, podcast gets published, uh, we'll also post some links to uh, you, like you know your your web page and your blog and some representative publications. But maybe we can say a little bit in, in introduction right now. Would you like to hear about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Richard, jump in any time, but uh, it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But Eric is a pretty cool dude. Would you agree? <laughs> uh, sure. I would not disagree with that. He's a pretty cool dude. <laughs> That's pretty guarded. <laughs> <laughs> <He's a pretty laughs> cool 
you know, one thing that uh, that Eric is is pretty terrific about is championing the um, interchange between philosophy and science, especially philosophy and psychology. And he's done a lot of really interesting things about introspection. He has uh, what is it, two books now that yeah. are uh, broadly about introspection. One of them is the Perplexities of Consciousness. That's the your single authored book, which right. uh, raises a lot of different skeptical cases. Is it fair to call it skeptical? Yeah. Some people don't <laughs> like that word. They're like, oh, I'm not a skeptic. I, I no, just I was that you don't know stuff. <laughs> uh, but then you also did this book, which um, was uh, with Russell Hurlbert. Is that yeah, that's right. Your co-author on that, and uh, and he is a psychologist, right? Right. Yeah, at UN University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Okay, and you guys did some experiments where the various uh, subjects had like beepers that would go off, and when the beeper went yeah. off, they had to make a journal entry about the contents of their consciousness. Wait, what? Yeah, what that's right. Fact, we, was we this study done in here? What did you oh, say? Oh, nothing. Oh, we I just, just say, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, we only used, in that book, we only used one participant. So it was an in-depth study of a single uh, person who was being beeped uh, over the course of six days at random intervals. Is that because you couldn't find anyone with a beeper? <laughs> <laughs> Russ makes his own beepers. He's got these custom beepers that are very 70s with like diodes in them and stuff. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I was going to say, was this study done in the 80s? <laughs> like a beeper the size of a briefcase. <laughs> I mean, uh, so, but that beeper stuff, that's that, that has a long history of, of people using that as a probe for uh, like reporting on whatever happens to be going on in their mental life at the moment, right? I mean, psychologists have done that kind of stuff in, in the past. Yes, although I think Russ is Russ Herbert's the one who's really taken the ball and run with it uh, the most with respect to the issue about consciousness, uh, as opposed to say sampling of behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the others have done consciousness too, but um, and uh, I guess more recently, you know, when when we think about you, uh, just <laughs> at least speaking for myself, we think of the the crazyism. And the related project about <laughs> what's the title of it? If materialism is true, then the United States of America is probably conscious. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> now, uh, Richard, were you telling me that that you're publishing this? Uh, well, yes, it's going to be included in a special issue uh, that I'm editing for um, Philosophical Studies. So they're publishing it, but yes, um, I'm editing that special issue. And that's something connected with uh, one of the online consciousness conferences, right? Yeah, with the last online conference um, that we had, uh, CO5, I believe it was, uh, February 20-something or another. I forget when that was. I, I don't even remember, to be honest with you. It might have been 2012. It seems like a million years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you remember, Eric? You, you presented there. <laughs> I think it was... Last year, I think it was 2013. 2013. Okay, yeah. that could that could be. You know, one never knows in these things. <laughs> that was so last year. <laughs> well, you know, does the past exist anyway? You know, the past, it's not here, so where is it? I hope it exists. Because <laughs> I made some wedding vows in the past. Oh, you made some wedding? Yeah, but those yeah. wedding vows only obtain in virtue of your current mental states and uh, your current intentions to 
currently keep those vows. Has your uh, wife ever heard you say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> no. I mean, but isn't this just a general? I mean, this is a point that that Sartre made a long time ago. I don't know if we want to talk about this or not, really, to be honest with you. But uh, you know, there's no kind of momentum that making a promise or a vow has. So you make the promise, or you make the promise at time t. And then you consider later time t2 or whatever. Uh, so what force does the promise made at time t have? Well, none, unless you also intend at time t1 to keep the promise. Well, so it does have the, the force point. of making you a jerk if you don't keep it. <laughs> well, you, well, we're <laughs> it's got about this moral power from the past to the future, right? Even if, it, right. Even if it can't compel you psychologically unless there's something true about your mind. Is is it fair to say that on this view, there's just there are no obligations. There's just your will, and if you will to act in such and such a way, then end of story. Uh, that's what's going on. No, that's not fair. Or I mean, no. Uh, so I'm not. I mean, so one way of describing it is I'm not bound. I'm not bound by anything. I just right because uh, to say that I'm bound would be like bad faith or something. I don't know the, the existentialist lingo very well, but I'm like radically free, and part of what that means is that I, I, I take full responsibility, and right? Right, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. So, I, I mean, I don't, I didn't, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned Sartre. Uh, yeah, that's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was making more of a point about uh, psychology rather than I was about the nature of obligations, because, you know, whether you're bound by an obligation, and, you know, this, now we can, I, so... You know, this is a. Uh, I think, in my opinion, this is something that people often try to do to Hobbes, um, for instance. And I think they get it wrong with respect to Hobbes. Uh, so a lot of people will will say, uh, "Well, look, you know, for Hobbes, you don't have any reason to keep an obligation in a state of nature, so there are no obligations in the state of nature." And and I think that's a mistake. I think actually what Hobbes says is that yeah, you don't have any motivation to keep the obligation, but the obligation exists independently of that. So huh. whether, whether you're obligated, and that's the view I would have, whether you're obligated or not, that's a different question. I was just, I was more trying to talk about the psychology of the person gotcha. who uh, has made the promise, like you. So if the past is no longer present, um, or doesn't exist, which is how this got started, uh, how, how this got started, then if the past isn't there, then, you know, in, in virtue of what am I still keeping vows that I made in the past? Well, I was right. claiming in virtue of current intentional states uh, yeah. current, uh, or dispositions to have intentional states, but not in virtue of something in the past, an intentional state in the past that's now somehow having this effect from the past um, on my current behavior. So gotcha. I, I think that's a different question than whether the obligation extends through time. Gotcha. Uh, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. So that's what I meant by there's no momentum there. So that, uh, um, so you don't need that. You don't need the past then in order to. Uh, I could tell my wife, yes, the past does not exist, and yet I still keep my. Yeah. <laughs> so your your vir yeah you uh your virtuous intentions supervene locally. <laughs> so does this mean that you're going to be? I mean, is there an empirical commitment here that uh, uh, whatever? has uh, causal power has to be actually existing in the present. Like you couldn't have trans-temporal causal power. Uh, if you're asking like my, where my kind of sympathies lie, yes, I would say that. Although, you know, people tell, there's, there's these weird interesting stories about backwards causations, especially when time traveling type situations. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I, you know, I don't know what what I'm like. You know, the Terminator, the classic example that's I have in the in the book that I edited uh, with uh, um, Kevin Decker for, you know, pop culture philosophy or whatever. Uh, we had to talk about this a lot. But there's a there, so if you wonder like who in, who created the Terminator? Well, in a sense, you know, the Terminator comes back from the future. They reverse engineer the Terminator in the past. And then that's how the Terminator gets built in the future. So there's this closed loop. Uh, <laughs> right. Like, David Lewis would approve. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. David Lewis. <laughs> yeah. I got to um, say, I'm really torn about this stuff because, you know, part of me wants to say, uh, yeah, right, there's, there's no trans-temporal causation. Everything that's causally efficacious is here and now. But then, then I remember Einstein, and uh, he seems pretty cool, too. I really, like, uh, want to be friends with Einstein. And, uh, you know, the Einsteinian stuff tells us there's no privileged uh, reference frame that gives us some absolute simultaneity. So there really is no privileged way of slicing the space-time loaf that gives you a unique now. And if there's no unique now, then there's, you know, there's no special here and now where all the causation or all the causal efficacy is restricted to. Right. Um, you know, and there are also interpretations of quantum mechanics that involve uh, um, communication or some sort of information transfer that goes faster than the speed of light, which would then be, you know, in some frames of reference would be backward causation. I think there's also at least conceptually uh, temporally gappy causation, you know, so an event happens in the past and then an event happens in the future and there's not a kind of consistent chain of intervening causal events that hooks them up. Right. Right. That seems to me at least conceptually possible. Temporal action at a distance. Temporal action at a distance. Exactly. Right. And this is going to get mixed in with spatial action at a distance once yeah. space and time kind of right. start... Uh, I mean, now hold on a second yeah. here. You guys aren't actually advocating these, right? Because are, you, are you saying that you're for uh, non-locality? I mean... A lot of people do, I think, invoke quantum mechanics and, and, and yeah. try to say, oh, look, non-locality. But if you actually look at, like, what physicists, or not, I mean, I, you could, I mean, maybe I, I cherry-pick the papers from archive I look at or whatever, but yeah, uh, um, it seems to me that what physicists, when they when they talk about this, they want to preserve locality. Right. And, and, the, and the interpretations of quantum mechanics that physicists, uh, and maybe, you know, maybe I'll stand corrected if someone wants to correct me, but I think that the interpretations of quantum mechanics that they're interested in are ones on which locality is, is preserved. And even entanglement and those kinds of things. Uh, now you have to give up some other stuff uh, if, if you want to preserve. But because, and, the, and the basic idea is because how else do you make sense of causation without, without, the, uh, <laughs> without locality? And if how do you make sense were, of causation without locality? Right. Well, how do you make sense of it without proximal causes and things interacting in proximally? Um, that seems so to be. A, a I'm not committed to non-locality or non-locality. I mean, I think there are people, there are pretty respectable physicists and philosophers of physics who think that you know non-locality is a very live possibility. But I don't. I'm you know I'm somewhat I'm skeptical in the sense of feeling like I don't know <laughs> about that. Um, but when you say like it's part of our understand very understanding of causation that there has to be kind of uh, locality to it you know it makes me think of those people who objected to Newton 
right, who said, well, look, you've got to have, like, little hooks have to come out of the sun and grab Earth and pull it back. You know, you've got to make right. sense of this in terms of corpuscles bumping against each other. How can you just have a mathematical equation that relates what's going on in this, you know, on the sun and what's going on in the planets without some intervening vortex or something, right? Right. You know, so there's this kind of, it seems to me like possibly too narrow a conception of what causation Yeah, but those be. guys were right, though. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, but and they could have been wrong. But, but like... and Newton himself was like, you know, Newton him himself says, you know, I I don't I don't know, and really, frankly, yeah. he does doesn't seem like he cared that much about that. That's the known, you know, Robert Fiengo or whatever uh, right, he right. says <laughs> right, <laughs> that he doesn't postulate any explanations. But right. um, but then you know that's why when people when Einstein comes along and, and tries to just show that. Uh, gravitational forces can be explained in terms of curved space-time, people go, oh, yeah, because then we understand it. The locality comes back. I don't yeah, understand that's cool. it. And well, it could go away again with the next whatever that comes up, right? I mean, can we sit here as philosophers and say, yeah, our concept of causation, it has to be local, right? Otherwise, it's not a cause and somehow constrained physics. Right. No, I, what I was saying was that probably uh, it's, you know, if you want, I'm not a Quinean probably in, in any real sense of that word, but I would say it's, if I were, it would be the thing which is very near the center of the web. Um, and that uh -huh. physicists are very, if, uh, if, if a lot of people are very reluctant to give that up. And there are interpretations of the science that don't give it up, and those are the ones that, like, people look at. I mean, not, not always, but I, that, those are good candidates. And, that, and the reason they're good candidates is because they preserve, and this will get us to the crazyism, by the way, uh, because <laughs> I think that the reason that they're good candidates and the reason why they're pursued <clears throat> is because they connect up even these like really high-level physics stuff to something that's kind of commonsensical, like, you know, bumping, <laughs> uh, being, <laughs> being next to or, or local, uh, local interactions, which is a way of trying to preserve a, a tenant of our normal thinking about the world. Right. You know, I want to I want to bring Descartes and Hume into this. You would. I want to do it. <laughs> uh, Cuz you know, I think for, for you know, for Descartes, he's very suspicious of empiricism and um is very very moved by a geometric model of explanation where <laughs> you know, you've explained something when you could see that it just has to be that way. And when it comes to causation, it's it's hard to get anything like that unless it involves spatio-temporal contiguity and you've got one extended thing pushing another extended thing out of the way. Uh, but, you know, Hume comes along with this and, uh, and looks at this from an empiricistic sort of way and says, like, you know, what what basis do we have for, for believing in anything like causation at all? And it has to do with the regularity of experience. And if you um, well, now hold on though you're wait, whoa, 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 well, you're sneaking something in here. Well, well just let me finish. Okay. If you if you look at this from a, <laughs> a human perspective, you know why not action at a distance? If if that's something that is regularly observed enough, then what basis is there for saying no? Sorry, that's not that's not causation. All right, I'm done. Right. No. I, so the only thing I was going to say that we were sneaking in is that Hume's issue, uh, according to me, is really about the necessity of the causal relation uh, and, and whether, in particular, um, um, uh, cause and effect relationship is such that given any cause, there's only one and only one effect which follows from that.
so that you know the one as this is quoth quotheth Hume saith Hume that the one is rendered the infallible consequence of the other. So I, I think that's what he's really get, that's what he's really upset about. And you know, quantum mechanics doesn't have that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, so we can get rid of that already if you accept the kind of um, uh, a fundamental randomness. Uh, and you know, maybe in that sense, you do get rid of causation. And some people have put it that way too. That if you you, you go down to the most fundamental level, and it just tells you, you know, six percent chance it comes out that way, five percent chance it comes out that way, and that's all that you get then maybe you've lost that kind of causal connection. And I think that th that way of thinking about cause is the way you were just thinking about it in terms of like what, re what does this thing determine as the next state of the system? And that, that connection might be lost, um, the one-to-one uh, -one kind of necessary connection thing. Uh, but, you know, that's different than the kind of normal bumping, then that happens. That doesn't have to be necessary, uh, but that's still local. So I think we can separate the locality issue but from if you're an empiricist, necessity issue. But, but, but if you're an empiricist, what would justify insisting that um, th there wouldn't be causation between things that are either spatially or temporally non-contiguous? Uh, well, I mean, ultimately, yeah. If you had to appeal to that, you maybe would do that. But the only point I was making earlier is that if there are theories laying around which don't do that and this seems like something worth preserving then those are the theories that people pay attention to and that we should look at um, so I wasn't saying you know that there could be no evidence for non-locality uh, or ac action at a distance um, or uh, any of these kinds of things but what I was saying was that you know Preserving that tenet of common sense is an important project, um, and so uh, not important, but you know, it's it's worth it's worth spending a career on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, maybe, maybe I have an infinite number of splitting universes would be one way to preserve locality in uh, quantum mechanics, uh, but that right. would be getting rid of maybe another aspect of common sense, right? Right, um, and of course, the multiverse thing is. Getting, but that's getting more. I mean, one way of looking at what's happening recently is that's getting kind of some empirical support. Well, the theory states that there are an infinite number of universes coexisting with ours on parallel dimensional planes. But dimensional planes, right? Don't, don't do that. And you know, people like Brian Greene, they love to make this argument that, uh, well, string theory sort of suggests it, and then people <laughs> go, oh, really? And he goes, yeah. And then people go, oh, and look, you know, we recently discovered these gravitational waves, uh, which are evidence for inflation. And inflation kind of suggests it. Um, and of course, that, I was going to mention that earlier when you're talking about faster than the speed of light, because it, they've had to change that recently. If you've noticed, physicists are, who've been talking about this stuff recently have been saying, rather than saying, like they used to, nothing can go faster than the speed of light, they're saying nothing material. <laughs> can go faster than the speed of light because uh, according to the inflationary model um, when when space expands at the first instant it does so faster than the speed of light that's right. the only way you get this relatively flat space-time structure at the end of that so you get this rapid faster than light expansion of, of well space-time itself I guess and then after that nothing else <laughs> <laughs> and therefore Star Trek is true <laughs> uh, I like that. that. Have you seen the designs for these warp drives that that uh, rely on a machine that can that can warp space uh, faster than light? Really? Yes. I have not. No, huh? Are people actually designing? You know, it's a space trial. You no longer <laughs> need to consume a, a planet the, the size of Jupiter in order to go faster than light. 
I, I briefly looked over some of the circuit well, diagrams. We got one of those here, though. We got a plane that big. We don't need it. <laughs> Sorry, Pete. What were you saying? We have you see the diagram. I, said I briefly uh, looked over some of the circuit diagrams for some uh, prototype warp drives. I, Are you you know. Yeah, yeah. How are they doing? <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think we're almost there. Diodes in there. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't really understand uh, inflation enough, to be honest with you, to know if this is a serious uh, thing, that this warp drive thing. Um, but uh, as far as I know, it's – I mean, the thing that's interesting about the, the inflationary stuff is if you just kind of look at it and you're a, a physicist, you go, hey, you know what? This looks like it would just happen forever all the time, spontaneously. Right. Um, uh, because there's this kind of you know inherent energy in the structure which just causes these uh, little you know bubbles of uh, space time to expand and then that's you know you get your universes and so that's the qu a quick route to the multiverse it actually looks like yeah, the math right. sort of points that way and so that's the argument that's bring us back to what we're talking about that's an argument a lot of people are making is that we have kind of a bunch of different lines of evidence which render this multiverse hypothesis plausible. Right. Um, would you say that multiverse is, is consistent with common sense? Would I say that the multiverse is consistent with common sense? I mean, yeah. Do you think it fits with... Because you're very interested in preserving common sense about locality. Yeah, no, I wasn't. I just said that one project that a person could have is preserving that. And then I also thought that it's interesting that uh, there are some physicists who think that's a very important project. Right. Uh, so, and that's not to say that you can't bring a, I mean, you know, if we're going to go to trial over this, you can bring in your expert witness too. Um, <laughs> but, but I was merely saying that um, it's not a bad thing. So I, I'm not a, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say common sense is sacrosanct or how, you know, that's, you know, this holy thing that we have to bow before. Uh, right. But what I am saying is that um, if you can save something from common sense, it's not terrible to do so. Yeah. That's yeah. Like a good default. Uh, strategy, you know, don't blow off common sense, uh, uh, you know, on the on the first step. Yeah. Exactly, and even even <laughs> if you're shady. at the level of doing quantum mechanics and stuff, it's still right. worth seeing if you can save a bit of that right. stuff. And you know, why would you do that though? Well, I don't know. I think it was Aquinas, although I never get these uh, the triple A's of of medieval times right, so I could be wrong. But anyway. I think it was Aquinas. He says, "Look, why do we care about common sense? Because you know, common sense is just the embodiment of a shitload of induction done by regular people. Um, so you know, roughly, that's a good thing. It's a lot of induction. Of course, induction is fallible. That's you know what. <laughs> hello, history, of philosophy, and all that stuff. So you know, induction isn't the be all end all, but common sense represents a really lot, a lot, a really lot. <laughs> I'm making up English." Um, it, it represents a lot of, of inductive work done over a large period of time. And so so how, do you, how do you reach an induction about how many universes there are? Well, right. see, that's so different. You might so think that, that would be something where common sense just... I mean, I agree you don't drop, get, let, get rid of it at a drop of a hat, but you might think there are some areas where common sense would be more reliable and other areas where it's not. And we're talking yeah. about things like big-picture cosmology, maybe this is one area where we think common sense would not be very reliable. Right, exactly. So, uh, I, and I wasn't making, so that was why I was, and on the one hand, happy to say it's an interesting project to defend locality, um, even when you're talking about string theory and quantum mechanics. 
But on the other hand, I'm happy to say, oh, there's some empirical evidence that people take serious about uh, the multiverse. And right. the, dif the difference to me is that, yeah, you know, uh, th this, this multiverse argument is like very complex and uh, you have to get very deeply involved in theory before you even see what, I mean, you can sort of say, yeah, inflationary theory suggested, but that means like the math of it, you, it says things which you, I mean, so there's a lot of stuff that you would have to do to sort of make that speak to you in the right way. Um, so it's not, common sense doesn't have very much to do at all <laughs> at that point. I mean, at, by that time you're like looking at some, some pretty serious equations and the equations are telling you, oh, well, these things could be popping off everywhere. And that, so common sense is, 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 is not playing a role there. But at the same time, though, if I could sort of just bring this back, um, it does play a role in common sense in this way. So if you think that something like the principle of sufficient reason is like the ultimate common sense thing, which some, <laughs> which some people yeah. do, um, some people do, uh, then this satisfies that because you can say, why is the value of the gravitational constant 6.67 times 10 to the negative, whatever it is, I forget, 10 to the negative 11th, I think, whatever. It's some random ass number. 6.67, well, 6 what? Uh, that's crazy. Why would it be that? Um, <laughs> well, here's an answer. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the answer is, it, well, multiverse. <laughs> It's everyone, so uh, it's no mystery why it's this one, and so that it is does tie it to common sense. Now, in a weird way, so you have totally, you have a vast number of universes, and some of them gravitational constant is this, and some of them gravitational constant is that. Yeah, so we just happen to be in one where the gravitational constant is blah. Yeah, right. well, and we got some number that you, it's like there's no way you hook it up with anything else in a way that explains it or makes sense. It's just that's where we happen to be. That's right, and so yeah. it gets it, it that like tackles the fine-tuning argument for God's right. existence. Uh, a lot of people like that. Um, it solves like anth anthropic kinds of worries. Some people say, you know, yeah. um, so you, and that's common sense. Yeah, rings a bell when you hear that right. explanation. Yeah, right. if it's in every way, then yeah. Going, so there's you know? but so there's a an infinite number of duplicates of me who've now teleported over into your room and stabbed a fork into your eyeball and ate it. Hey, right? now, wait, why are they... Why are they yeah. No good reason. <laughs> What's with those guys? <laughs> I mean, if, if, if right, it makes you feel any better, if wait. it makes you feel any better, there's also an infinite number of me who have... Uh, worked out that you were going to do that by carefully studying your neurochemistry during this conversation and preemptively stabbed your eye out and ate it. So that's all right. Oh. You, guys are, you guys are pretty gross. I just infinitely, infinitely I gross. You used that example on me when I started talking about the multiverse. He's like, oh, so there's an infinite number of you were... All right, so now it's just whenever I think about it, that's what yeah. comes up. <laughs> I'm not ever going to forget about that. <laughs> but yeah, right? So if there's an infinite number of universes and everything that's like not even physically possible, right, but some right. even broader sense of possible possibility, right, happens an infinite number of times, basically, on certain assumptions about diversity, right, then, like, everything happens an infinite number of yeah. times. Yeah. yeah. Nietzsche, therefore, Nietzsche. 
Therefore, Nietzsche. Exactly. <laughs> Eternal return. Scramble. Sideways. Yep. That's how I think of it. So, and that's, like, totally bizarre. So, like, should I care about, like, whether I die now? Because, you know, there's going to be an infinite number of beings who pop into existence thinking that they're just randomly pop into existence thinking they're me with all the yeah. kind of quasi-memories that I have. But of course you should care if you die because, you know, it's just like, it's like as a New Yorker, if the subway's there and it's really crowded, should you try to squeeze on it? Of course you should because it, that one's here now. <laughs> so you don't know, yeah, of course, you, the next one's coming. They say it every time. Oh, there's a train immediately behind this one. Um, don't try to cram onto the train. There's one right behind this one. But yeah, fucking right. I'm cramming on it because that one's there. So uh, it's important. <laughs> It doesn't matter if the next one literally is right behind it. So, yeah, those other people might pop up in a second, but I'm here now. So I right, care about lightning this. Lightning strikes me dead right in this instant. Whoa. And then in 16 Googleplex years, right, some random patch of dust coalesces into the Milky Way galaxy, a duplicate of the Milky Way galaxy, with a guy who thinks he's Eric Schwitzgable right yeah. there, thinking he's on space-time mind having this conversation... That guy, there would be, you could draw a continuous, as it were, phenomenological line, right? So there's this big temporal gap. In a way, who cares? I wouldn't notice, or this being constituted partly of the me struck by lightning and the sudden, spontaneously emerging me. Would, you know, in a way, it seems like maybe this being wouldn't notice, shouldn't care. What have we done? So part of it, I don't know, I mean, when I started thinking about this stuff, who is it? It's uh, Epicurus or somebody, some old ancient-timey guy had this thing about death. Epicurus. You know, when it's Epicurus. <laughs> before you're dead, you know, it hasn't happened yet. So yeah. why, why worry about it? And then uh, after you're dead, you're not going to mind. So... Right, yeah. you know, I was. Yeah, that never like, seemed like a very good argument to me. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, really? The, yeah, the. I mean, the point of Epic that Epicurus was making was that you, yeah, you don't, you don't regret the time that you didn't have <clears throat> before you were born. So you right. didn't, you don't fear it, you don't regret it. It doesn't seem like you're missing out on anything. Yeah. So why should you feel any kind of uh, uh, that? those attitudes towards the gap which is coming in the future, which is identical phenomenologically right. to the gap in the past, right? Why are you making me regret I wasn't born earlier? Yeah, I know, exactly. That's what that yeah, argument yeah. always did to me, too. I was like, yeah, <laughs> no, I do regret that, Epicurus, you bastard. <laughs> but I didn't know it till just now. <laughs> but also, not only is there the regret, but, you know, um, I, I, I wonder why Epicurus doesn't think that we shouldn't worry about our reputations after we die. Right. 
So, you know, you won't be around to be harmed, but shouldn't I worry about that now? That's kind of your point about uh, the other poppings into it. So, you know, what if, you know, after I die, instead of being remembered as a philosopher who was, you know, moderately uh, not terrible at their job, what if people start, remember me as, you know, the world's greatest pedophile? <laughs> that would be terrible in my opinion. Right. Um, is that something I should be afraid of right now? I mean, should I be, can be kept up at night that there are people that in, in history might look back on me as the world's greatest pedophile? That I, I don't know. Um, obviously, that's out of our control, but uh, I wonder why Epicurus doesn't worry about that kind of thing as he's trying to say, don't worry about like what happens after death. Yeah. You guys don't worry about that kind of stuff? I no, mean, I do worry about it. And I don't yeah. accept my multiverse argument about not worrying about lightning either. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I, 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 I think it's not totally obvious what's wrong with that. Yeah. With that argument. So, I mean, I don't know. Some people probably think it's obvious and have it all figured out. But, uh, but I don't know. I kind of feel like if you take really seriously the multiverse idea that there are an infinite number of duplicates of you working out every possibility... I don't know. Somehow that feels like uh, might have some strange metaphysical implications once you start thinking it out. Well, is there a problem with specifying? Uh, I mean, part of what makes this confusing is not being totally clear about types and tokens. So there's still this. Mm -hmm. Like you're a token of uh, of a type that has right. uh, on this hypothetical scenario, it has an infinite number of instantiations. Right. But so what? Why can't the token just just uh, care about what happens with the token? I, I mean, I think part of what you need to push for to really raise a problem here is that there there might be trans-temporal uh, criteria for token identity, right? Exactly, that this, right. That this distant thing, right, is is tokens. Some it's token identical to you, the current thing, right? Right, right. So exactly. So I mean, I think the issue is. How is it, you know, assuming that I care about me, right, some sort of identity thing instead of, like, beings like me or something like that or beings indistinguishable from me, right, then we need, we want to think about some sort of way of identifying who counts as me over time. And you could do that, you know, by means of spatiotemporal continuity, but I guess one of the things that makes me hesitate and that would give you some nice, clean answers, right? But one of the things that makes me hesitate about that is it does not seem to me like spatiotemporal continuity per se is all that important, right? So, for example, if we just hit the pause button on the universe for 10,000 years and ran some other universe for a little while and then started this one up again and nobody noticed and, you know, nothing was different, right? It's like, who cares about that lack of continuity, right? So there's got to be... So well, it seems to me just, like spatial temporal continuity is not, is not exactly where the heart of the matter should be. Well, can we distinguish between continuity from within the system and continuity without the system? So in the example that you just described, there is continuity from the point of view of any given uh, space-time object or creature or, or whatever. Um, where there's no so for instance, and what that means to say there's that continuity. Might be question but begging. hold on, but what? No, there's no no question. So it can't be begging. <laughs> I was kind of thinking it was. <laughs> it's but hold on, but hold on. Okay. What, what it means to say that there's continuity inside the system is yeah. to say that from the point of view of any given thing in the system, nothing has changed relative to the last state that it was in. 
inside but it might the be, system. You've got, so, you've got but, two but, different... so any given setup in the system is exactly the same way that it was previous to it. So that whatever other universe you were running, that's a, yeah. that's a causally isolated system from the thing that was paused. So there is continuity yeah. in that sense. But it might be that you've got two, uh, you've got uh, two token uh, distinct uh, things uh, on either side of the temporal gap, and and thus two different uh, subjective points of view. They just happen to be qualitatively similar. So you've got qualitatively similar points of view. So to describe it as a single uh, point of view begs the question about whether we're dealing with one or two uh, psychological tokens. But I don't care about that question because all I what what I what I was talking about was whether there's a kind of continuity, whether you can define a kind of continuity that would matter. Um, and uh, in this sense, it does matter because the, if if you're an acting agent in this system, and and like for instance, if if I am in this system right now and this is paused, yeah. And then yeah. let's say that as soon as I said the word pause, that literally, and then after right when I just now said it, and as soon as I say that, that actually was a hundred thousand year gap in between those two occurrences. Um, and that was during which the system was paused and some other shit was happening. And then suddenly it was unpaused and then I finished my sentence. But of course, my tea is right where I left it. The water is there. The remote is over there. You're still here. This conversation is still continuing. So from within the system itself, there's tons of continuity. But one way of uh, describing that continuity so, is just that the second, the second thing believes it's, it, it was the same, that it's, <laughs> it was the first thing. But it's not only that it believes it, but all its beliefs about where things are are true and uh, where well, things are in relation to it. What if there are two such con uh, uh, con uh, candidates for continuity, right, in somewhat different places or at somewhat different times? Well, that's a different, that's a different issue. You guys were just saying that there's this temporal gap, right. and I was just saying that, yes, from outside the system there's a gap, but from within in the system there's no gap. It's, everything is continuous from the point of view of the system. Well, that's, that's, that's the lightning strike case again, right? So I'm struck by lightning, right, and then in a Googleplex years there's – a new me that suddenly congeals in a sudden galaxy. That's not the same case, though, Eric, and the reason why but is because when you know, when you congeal over there, everything is not as you left it. So when you congeal, your no, Well, I'm imagining everything is, right? And we can have the lightning destroy the whole galaxy if we want. It doesn't have to just... Lost galaxy. <laughs> uh, well, yes, if, if then, then that's, a, that's, that's a, a, a rotation through which the system is the same system. I mean... If, you, if you're just imagining everything is exactly the same, except now it's a million miles away from here, yeah, yeah. Then, then that's the difference. Does that make a difference to anything inside the system? No, it doesn't. Right. Um, so, but unless it, you want to measure like the distance from you to Andromeda Galaxy, that's going to make a difference because you're a million miles right. away now. So that's right. not continuity. So that's not continuity. The kind of continuity I was, continuity I was talking about... <clears throat> is where everything in the system is identical. So if you measure your distance to Andromeda, it, you get the same distance. So, you know, you can, make, you can mess with this to get other stuff. Yeah, I agree. But I was just saying in this kind of case, there's an important kind of, there's something there that we can call continuity that matters from inside the system. And so it doesn't matter what you do to it from outside. Well, I think, there, I think you need to describe this in like a neutral sort of way. So, you know, one way of thinking about it is we've got an X and we've got a Y. And, 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 you know, we, we're neutral. Uh, we don't say whether X is identical to Y or not. We don't say whether X is numerically identical to Y or not. And then we pick various properties that they have in common. So that, you know, they, they have, um, 
spatial properties in common, or they have phenomenal properties in common, or they have um, you know uh, uh, commonality of, of temporal location, and then uh, and then we change other properties, and then and now we can, from a neutral uh, point of view, ask questions about whether um, uh, any of those changes in property resulted in a, a change of identity. Yeah, but I wasn't talking about changes in identity. I was just talking about a kind of continuity that would exist within that system. Well, you were talking about uh, similarities of property. Yes. And it would be but not only, but where, 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 no matter how long of a gap in between two states of a system. Yeah. As long as the next state of the system is starting from the last state of the system, the system is continuous. I mean. Well, the system you, has. You the know, this, if you think about it in math, you know, some people say, okay. So is, is the function 1 over x squared a continuous function or not? Because that's the kind of function that goes asymptotically. Uh, um, and so people say, no, that's not a continuous function because look at its value for 0. Oh, there's, a, there's a gap right there. It's not continuous. But in, within, within the domain of acceptable values of that function, it is continuous. Look at the graph of it. With every, that graph is continuous. On one side, it's continuous on the other side. Yes, there's a gap in between it, but there's still a notion of continuity that's and that's important and that does some work and that's worth and that you know you can call it if you don't like the word continuous, I don't care because uh, obviously the two graphs on the on the side of the, uh, of the um, zero there are not the same line. So whether they're the same or different, it doesn't matter. But the, the question only is whether there's a kind of continuity that matters to the system, and I'm saying there is. Yeah, but the only kind of continuity that you can help yourself to. Is uh, one that can be described in terms of commonalities of properties. So if before you know shutting it down, you're experiencing red. Uh, then when we start it back up again, red is experienced. And we we're neutral well, about. Well, it's more than that. It's that everything else is the same as well. But we could describe this in terms of uh, all the same phenomenal properties being instantiated. Well, we're neutral about whether. It's a second instantiation. You, you can tell the story however you want. I mean, I don't, I'm not the one making this up. You guys said, here's a, <laughs> this is your example. You said, here's a system that's running, and then we pause yeah. it, yep. and then we do something else, and then we unpause it, and then you said something about continuity. And so I said, that's too fast. And now you start talking about identity and all this other shit, which, you know, is interesting, and I like it, but it's not the thing we were talking about. We were talking about whether I was just saying that there is a kind of continuity from within the system. That whether it's two things or one thing on the other end of that gap is sort of irrelevant to the question of what the next state of the system is going to okay. be when you unpause it. Okay. Because all you've done is pause it. Take a breath. Take a breath. Smell a smell. Sniff a sniff. And take a breath. You can move your feet to walk and you use your tongue to talk, but your mouth and nose are waiting. Take a breath.
Awesome. I'm on the Starship Enterprise macking on Yeoman Ran while the Andorian with the Disruptors back on Talos 4 or whatever. What do you think all those sparkles and shit are? Transporters are breaking you apart and down to your molecules and bones. They're making a copy. That dude who comes out on the other side, he's not you. He's the color Xerox. So you're telling me every time Kirk went into the transport, he was killing himself? Mm -hmm. So over the whole series, there's like 147 Kirks. At least. Dude, yo, why do you think McCoy never likes to be nowhere? Cause he's a doctor, bitch. Look it up, it's science. <laughs> and so if you unpause it, the next state that's gonna happen follows from the previous state in exactly the same way that it would have without the pause. So that's a kind of continuity, and it's something that matters because the system will continue to unfold in the same exact way that it did. In a way, you might think it matters more than identity. Yeah, that's the, yes, exactly. Right, so even if we set aside issues about identity, right, but, but then I think we're starting to come close to not caring about the universe being destroyed right. and then replaced, right, or the Earth being yeah. destroyed, or some arbitrarily large patch... Well, that's what that was kind of my point. But that, but the re, what we care about is that the thing that comes back is in the same exact state that it was before it was right. destroyed, which is guaranteed and, to happen, right? In at least a at multiverse least. with enough uh, <laughs> diversity, right? Well, so, in other words, you know, here comes the meteor going to destroy Earth. Well, you know, in a way, we don't care because that's just the pause button. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, but in a way, we do care. Eventually, like qualitatively identical, arbitrarily large patch. If you want 10,000 years of light coming in from Andromeda, fine. Right, but that's not exactly... If you exactly want Andromeda the... itself, fine, eventually. But that's not exactly the same, though, because if you hit the pause button and the meteor is just impacting, and then you unpause it, the impact unfolds as normal. So that was the kind of continuity that I was talking about. That doesn't help us. Um, because if you, if you blink out of existence right when the impact hits, but then blink into existence right during the impact, you're, you're just as screwed. So, <laughs> so again, that's, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm saying that this kind of continuity matters. And so we should be worried, I mean, we should be worried about this and whether this kind of continuity is preserved. Because you're right, yeah, if we get hit, but then we blink into existence in a different configuration, which superficially resembles what would have happened if the thing hadn't hit us, that's a different kind of thing. Um, than the kind of con the the system I'm talking about, which is one that just gets paused and then restarted, where everything is the same as it was before. It starts from the same state. So you're well, describing. Uh, yeah, right. Well, I don't think we're going to figure that all out right now, and and I'm I haven't figured it all out. But the you know the thing that I think is inter one of, or I guess one of the things that I think is interesting about contemplating multiverse theory is it puts pressure on these kinds of things, right? Uh, if, if what we really care about is uh, qualitative properties or conscious experience uh, or whatever, right, you can have, and if, if spatio-temporal continuity per se is not really that important, then we've got to figure out, <laughs> then there's some challenges that are going to come from uh, in, in thinking this, these issues out, I think. Yeah, and, and but if the kind of spatial temporal continuity that I'm talking about is important, then you know you have a relatively good answer to those kind of worries. You guys, <laughs> okay, got a continuity uh... of a certain sort. But you know, what, can I just press this a little bit more because you know what I was thinking yeah. about when you were talking, Eric, was uh, 
because you know there's this big conference at NYU this weekend on modal metaphysics. Um, yeah. And Timothy Williamson is going to be there uh, talking about his new book called um, Modal Logic as Metaphysics. Have you are you aware of any of this work? Or P or as well? Are you? What do I you think read of that stuff? Book, so. Too okay. Well, are you aware of the thesis of the book? No, I'm not. Uh, Pete, are you? Do you want to say I, something? I read about? a review of it. I forgot who wrote the review. Is it the NDPR, the Notre Dame Philosophical Review? One? Probably. Yeah, I read that thing all the time. Okay. But it just sounds like really too complicated. Um, the book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the whole well, project. I mean, it's just like I haven't, I haven't read the book either, but I've read some some of Williamson's stuff or whatever. But can I just sort of say what it is then? Yeah, go for it. Because I think it actually lends some support to what you're saying, Eric. Maybe. Um, so you might like it. You might become a convert. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I mean, Usually I find myself with very different opinions than Williamson. Okay, so well, interesting. So, so lay it on me, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the basic idea is that he wants to uh, defend a view called necessitarianism or necessitism, or I don't know which one it is, but it's something. The basic claim is which that. Um, so if you if you just were to look at modal logic in its simplest, purest form, without tweaking with anything, like the kind of thing that follows naturally from first order logic adding quantifiers and then modal operators, then you get a logic in which you get certain things as theorems, things like the Barkin formula, for instance, um, mm. and, and things like, uh, and if you don't know, I, I mean, maybe for those of us who don't know what the Barkin formula is, roughly you, in one form that I think is the clearest form that makes it interesting is it claims something to the effect that if it's possible that there is something, like for instance, I don't, I don't have a brother, so if it's possible that I do have a brother, then there is some thing which is possibly my brother. That, and that you know, causes all sorts of problems because what kind of thing is it that's merely possibly my brother? Um, yeah. and, and so that's weird. And then another um, uh, consequence is that you can just sort of straightforwardly show that there's a theorem which claims that every object necessarily exists. I mean, everything necessarily exists. And that's necessitism, uh, the claim that uh, everything necessarily exists uh, everything is, wait, necessarily everything is such that necessarily that thing exists. And, um, so now that's a radically shocking view that like for, that you necessarily exist, I necessarily exist, you, yeah, we all necessarily exist. Woo! Yes, we're like, take that guy. <laughs> how, how do you conclude that kind of stuff from... Well, hold on. Anything. Well... Right, it, so I think this multiverse stuff, I, I haven't if finished. it's true, it's because this empirical evidence is pointing toward it, not because of the rules of this such and such version of modal logic. Well, we'll see, but you, you don't have, that's, yeah, okay, so can I finish the argument? <laughs> yeah, go, go for it. Uh, so that's what happens if you just, and so most people say what you, you boo-hooers say. Oh, boo-hoo, we're not going to take logic seriously. Yep. Fuck logic. <laughs> you guys have the, the, the courage to say fuck logic. I'm okay. pooping at logic right now. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. So, so the basic, so the argument that he, so the argument there is then a lot of people will try to do stuff to the, to the, to the logic itself to avoid that consequence, um, and there are various uh -huh. things you can do. Uh, I like Kripke's maneuver, and I, you know, I have a story about that, about um, the way that language, uh, logic of, the, of sentences of English is going to be different than a logic for thoughts uh, in, in, that we're thinking. They're not the same. So I, I, you know, I think you can tell a story about that, but, but that, you, that's weird. 
the claim is the simplest view is just to accept what the logic tells you as a metaphysical view as about the way the world is and his claim is if you don't do that then you you end up with a a really gerrymandered non-elegant system uh, and if you do do that accept these things then you get this sort of super elegance nice axiom system that you can use to bolster all your other stuff and you may not care about that but some people like simplicity and elegance in their theories uh, and then, of course, then the big thing that's that now you have to own up to, Eric, is that okay. the only argument against this view is that it's anti-common sense. And his big, he spends like a lot of time sort of saying, who cares if it's anti-common sense? Why should we take common sense's word that, you know, you're a contingent being? And then so what he does is make a move. He distinguishes between um, existing and merely being there. So he says, look, you know, this table necessarily in every possible world, this table is there, but in some ways in worlds it's there, but, you know, and not in the same way that it's right here. And so, you know, that's weird. It's not common sense, but so what? I mean, and so if the only, if, if, if everywhere else you go, and by the way, you are this person, um, if everywhere else you go, you say simplicity, elegance, that's something that's important to me. Oh, and if it leads me to weird views, you know what? Common sense, meh. And then you go, oh, but when it comes to that kind of stuff, no, uh-uh. Simplicity, common sense. Oh, well, common sense. <laughs> uh, I, for those who are listening, I was bowing to common sense there. Yeah, so he was headbanging to common sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that was right. a friend of mine's band in high school. It's called Common Sense, and we used to headbang to it all the time. Uh, but so what? So what? What say ye, Eric? Oh, ye denouncer of common sense. Why is it sacrosanct here? I don't know. I'm not saying common sense is sacrosanct here. Well, then why not see, accept I don't see the Well, for one thing, I'm a logical pluralist. Right. Yeah, right. Maybe. So I think there are different ways of doing the dance of symbols. There's not one right best way. Right. What so if you're going to say here is the one right best way, and I'm going to draw metaphysical conclusions from that fact, then your kind of your meta philosophy is different from mine. But so what's the that's that's a statement. What's an argument? What's an argument for logical pluralism? Or that yes, that if you if that if you find a system of logic that is the simplest, most elegant system, and the other ones uh, you have to gerrymander and add all kinds of weird stuff in to make it do what you want, and of course you can do that because logic is our bitch and it will do what we tell it to do. Um, it's simply right. a, a set of axioms. Yeah, so what? You're right. I mean, part but of what's up in the air get, is what you want. Get a certain set of axioms then you have elegance and simplicity. In, in other areas, that seems to matter. So why does it matter a very simple logical here? system right here. There's only one truth value, zero. There's only one set, the empty set. And you can't do anything with them. Now right, so the simplest, use, the simplest useful system. Yeah, but like, oh, useful? Wait, right. where did that come in from? Well, you know, the simplest one that lets you do the stuff that we normally do with logic. Oh, but like, I don't do that? the stuff that Timothy Williamson does. Like, the stuff that he wants to do with logic, I just don't want to do that stuff. I what don't do give mean? a shit. You, like, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to, like... You know, I'm trying to build bridges and, and, and get people back on the moon. Yeah, and so look, dude, I, I mean, are you being that. serious right now? Because uh, if yeah, you're I American, I don't really understand what the hell you're saying, and I'm sort of getting irritated, because <laughs> if, if, you really, if you really want to build a bridge 
then I assume that you give a shit about the counterfactual, which states that if you don't put the right amount of concrete in the bridge, then people will die. So that's, that's a counterfactual claim, yes, and, and you need to evaluate that claim. And so there's and, – and Williamson's big argument is that there's this really tight link between evaluating counterfactuals and thinking about – Now, do I need to have two truth stuff. values? What was that? No, do I, I need mean, to have no, two truth, truth values? Uh, you mean what do you need uh, to respect um, bivalence in, yeah. in your simplest logic? Uh, well, you know, that's a different question, to be because honest it seems with you. Like and it might be, that, that might be useful advanced. for something else. It seems to me that there are some projects that are nicely advanced by having two truth values, and there are other projects that are nicely advanced by having a continuum of truth values. That's right, and our project is thinking about modality. And so already there you've got two systems that could be useful, that have different kind of advantages in uh, applying the, uh, the rules of the system to the world. A two-truth-valued a two logical system and one that has a continuum of truth values. Um, so what's the continuum of truth values with respect to, so that in some possible worlds the thing is neither true nor false? I mean, so the, yeah, so you could have a mini-valued modal logic, I guess, you know, uh, that I don't really care about that, to be honest okay. with you. Um, but uh, as long as you worry about explosion, and I'm sure people like Grand Priest can build in the right axioms and, and stuff like that. Um, right. The question is what you have to give up and whether you give up something that matters for simplicity and elegance. And I think a lot of people do um, think that, where that if you take a, a dialethist kind of position or non-classical logic, you have to give up some something like modus ponens maybe. Doesn't yeah. come out valid in your system of what? Uh, okay, so maybe it could come out consistent within the system, but giving up, you know, modus ponens, the most directly intuitively valid argument structure ever discovered. Probably, you know, the it's not only an argument structure; it's a rule of inference and logic. I mean, it's like the thing which, if we can't defend it, then logic dies. So. Um, <laughs> And you can define other systems where it's not there, but you lose the most basic thing that we all. So I mean, look, you can you can like you said, I'm a pluralist to some extent. You can use certain things better in certain logics, you know, and um, you, you know that's why imaginary numbers are useful for us because it, you know the way they oscillate when you graph them is useful for representing electrical currents and sine waves and stuff. So okay, great, you find a use for that stuff. Um, but we were talking about something else, which was whether whether we should care about thinking about modality. And you guys were saying, no, we're Quinians, and we want to say things like, we don't care that it's, whether it's possible for this bridge to support the weight of 900 pounds in the way that it's built. Uh, but we do care about... I don't about feel like I was committed to that. <laughs> you don't care about thinking about modality. I don't care possible. about thinking about modality, but well, I'm Pete not... Did. Pete did. He said he was... Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I could I could build that bridge <laughs> without modality. Yeah, okay. You can't build it without counterfactuals, <laughs> and if counterfactuals are connected to modality, then you can't do it without modality. I could I could do a real sloppy job with the modal logic and still make a kick-ass bridge, is what I'm saying. And there's like really fine points about you know um, whether whether diamond P entails diamond 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 P or something like that, and. I don't. I don't think those kinds of controversies uh, make contact to the way the bridge goes up. But what if they do? I mean, you so you have an intuition, but what if you looked at the logic and you saw that it did? I would. I would. I would say because okay. Because the, the kind of the kind of the kind of stuff. I'm sticking I mean, my neck out here. I'm saying like, look, I, I don't think it matters for uh, in physical uh, 
physical engineering applications or uh, empirical science, uh, how do we resolve these various controversies in modal logic? But they're, they're philosophical in the worst sense of the word. They're merely philosophical. Um, that couldn't be more, I mean, then why do you care about physicalism? Or why do you care about anything? Like everything we talk about is like whether things could be other than they are. Like what's free will about? What's, like every debate here is centrally tied to the notions of modality. I mean, you can't, I don't even understand what we're talking about anymore if you're saying you don't care about the way things could be or the way things could have been. But I think I could I could be sloppy about what were we what were we just doing we were just talking about like is could there be a multiverse oh that that's not talking about yeah but no one whipped out any modal particular modal logical system like, you didn't you whip didn't... it out but you had it in your pants because you know what in your pants <laughs> was necessarily x equals x that was, was in your uh, that was in your pocket uh, I'll bet you it was s five that's kind of um, uh, Williamson's point. <laughs> Is that the most simple and elegant modal logic S five to be the to, to give it the name is the one? Wait, that, I, I proposed a more simple logic, I believe. I can uh, make it modal the, by adding one other axiom if you want. Um, you? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's modal logic. But <laughs> you know what? You can't. But it's simple for certain uses. You can't prove right. anything. Like you can't prove that you know you are the same object necessarily. Well, but we you can't can prove everything, right? No, you can in S five. <laughs> what do you mean? Given a rel. You're making a joke, and I, it's maybe funny in a different context. No, it's not. Right well, now, it's I'm not saying, a joke. It's meant seriously, right? Isn't that? Well, then that's not. It's, then it's not serious because a proof is relative to a formal system. Yeah. So within a formal system, you can prove things. That's just definitional. I mean, that's what we're talking about. So oh, I just said you can prove everything. Some, what I said was you can't prove everything. You can't prove anything except that you know nothing. If there's no rules, you can't prove anything. There's no proof procedure. You said you just have a symbol. Yeah. With no rules, so you can't do a proof. Well, I'll allow for two-line proofs. Uh, okay, so you can, but you can't prove anything that's worthwhile or interesting, okay, or that will allow us to do. As soon as you say worthwhile and interesting, yeah. and as soon as you say this thing is simpler than this other thing, I think you're bringing in a variety of possibly competing considerations. Well, what are they? Because look, here's what here's what's interesting: calculating the differential um, of a certain object moving. Um, uh, down a hill, and guess what? You can do that using calculus, and guess yeah. what? You can formalize that in a nice modal logic. So that's interesting. Um, you know, you can actually talk about the foundations of mathematics. You say you don't care about it. I say without calculus, you're not building the Empire State Building. And you say, well, we, yeah, I don't need to understand the foundations of it, but guess what? They are there. And whether you <laughs> want to understand them or not, what they are is what they are. So uh, it. If, if they are at their foundation characterizing these modal terms, then you know, and this is what we were talking about yesterday. I just I, doubt that there's one right logic that there's, you can say, okay, here is the one logic that Pete has in his pocket that is the single right logic. And there, and if it has some metaphysical implication, which is already something I don't understand how you get from a logic to metaphysical implication, maybe, right? But even uh, the first step before that, right, now I shouldn't. I haven't read Williamson's book, right? So I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's. The maybe my mind would change, right? But the. No, it, 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 his argument <laughs> is just simply that the only claim against it is anti-common sense. There's no other good argument. That's the that's the argument. <laughs> but if the if the thing is if his view is here is the one right logic, I'm suspicious of that. Here is the simplest version of logic in which you can prove things that are valuable to us, like calculus. Um, and arithmetic and geometry, 
Why not that? How come that's not important? So is it a two-valued logic? Uh, it could be. Yeah, I think you know S5 is usually interpreted as the two-valued logic. Right. So there might be another logic but, that could be are other things that a two-valued logic struggles with. Right. But that like, might not have anything might, to do with like, who or... wants epistemicism about vagueness, for example? Right. This is something that Williamson's famously on the hook for. Right. Which is one thing that might come from a simple interpretation of two-valued logic. Right. If you're interested in vagueness, you might not want that logic. You might want a different logic for talking about the kinds of things you're interested in. Right. So. I think you're when you're developing a lot. I can't address the particular logic that he's talking about there because I haven't read the book. But it seems. To, but my general view is that when you're building a logic, you're making choices that are going to have advantages and disadvantages. There's not going to be one right logic that fits best for everything. That's and right. If you have a view on which there is, and if your view is committed to there being such and such metaphysical truth follows from the fact that this is the one right logic. Well, I, I guess I'm not. I'm. I'm suspicious about both aspects of that. Yeah, I just want. I'd like to see an argument. I, suspicion is fine, but I just don't see because um, <laughs> you can have the view that I have uh, and accept everything that you just said. So yeah, different logics are useful for different kinds of things, but you still haven't made a claim that, for instance, there is a legitimate possibility of there being some true contradiction somewhere. So you know, if there is a possible world in which there is a true contradiction, then yes, maybe we need to import some. Three, some third value into our uh, logic of what's possible and what's necessary. But you, you, you say, okay, so maybe I'm not making a claim about what one true logic is. What I was making a claim was simply something else. If there is a system of logic, a set of axioms, which yeah. are uh, simple in the sense that they sort of look like they are natural um, and you can, you, you can count that as however you want. But uh, and with which you're able to do stuff with, like that uh, we might be interesting, um, uh, and you can count that how you want. And building a lot of stuff in there, and I'm aware of that. But I would say interesting things involve like uh, uh, giving a foundation for mathematics, for instance, and, and uh, that seems important because I want to build bridges. So I want to make sure that I could say some things about this stuff. So okay, um, now if you find a system of logic like that. And the only reason you have for not interpreting it literally is that's not common sense. Then you don't have a good argument. That was the only claim I was making, and so I could right. agree with everything you said. Different yeah. tools for different purposes, but I was making a different claim. If this happens, and your yeah. only response is that violates common sense, and by the way, that yeah. there is one true logic sounds like to you it violates common sense. But uh, I no, say, I think that there's one true logic is probably closer to common sense than. than yeah, that. I was about to say that does sound commonsensical to me. Yeah. So no, my I'm not. My argument isn't about common sense. My argument is about my concern is about logical pluralism. So about the condition that you just stated, in fact, being true. Right now, if that were true, then there'd be a further argument that I would be inclined to make about philosophical methodology or epistemology having to do with how much you can conclude about the world from looking at formal logical structures. I'm going to stop here to be polite to you for a second. But this goes on for hours and hours, and it gets so weird and abstract at the end. It's like, why? Well, because some things are and some things are not. Why? Well, because things that are not can't be. 
Why? Because then nothing wouldn't be. You can't have fucking nothing isn't. Everything is. Why? Because if nothing wasn't, there'd be fucking all kinds of shit that we don't like giant ants with top hats dancing around. There's no room for all that shit. Why? I'll fuck you. Eat your french fries, you little shit. God damn it. Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Right, but so look, you're 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 committed to crazyism. So why isn't this just a, a crazy view? Yeah, some kind of crazy view has got to be right. Here's right. a crazy view that you get your metaphysics from S5. Uh, yeah. So so what? You, I mean, that's crazy. You say I say yeah, it's a two-valued logic. I mean, I don't know if it has to be. Let's say it does. It's a two-valued logic. It's S5. It says everything necessarily exists. It's freaking crazy. It's the it's the best thing ever. So what's wrong with? I mean, you can't. I mean you. You can, right. It sounds like what you're saying is, oh, that sounds crazy to me. <laughs> I don't think that's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, you're saying you, you, that this less crazy view that there's a plural of, of things is more, seems more likely, uh, more, more intuitive to you. Well, I mean, you know, issues about philosophical methodology are pretty difficult here, right? But I'm not... I think logical pluralism is uh, probably on the face of it less intuitive than thinking that there's a single right logic? I'm not sure about that, but I would that seems to be right. You would disagree with that. You think logical yeah. pluralism is more intuitive. But, you know, I no, I agree with the general point that kind of where we've been starting with this, right, that uh, our common sense intuitions about matters of logic and mathematics, right, clearly break down, like, say, with infinity. With the infinite, our intuitions are completely bunk. Who's right? our? Who's our? Uh, my does, does <laughs> my our, intuitions. Does our yeah, include? Uh, does it? What? Does that include Cantor and Girdle? No. Okay. So why does that that seems importantly different to me? I mean, yeah. If our includes, if by which, if you, what you mean by our intuitions is, yeah, everyone who doesn't understand infinity. Then okay, who cares? Yeah, that's there are I mean. some people who seem to understand it very well, and their intuitions should count for something, right? Right. No, I meant common sense. I meant our commonsensical intuitions, which means yes. non include our undergraduate students. Yes. Yeah. So right. So struggle with math is going to violate the common sense for sure. Yeah. So I'm not saying that you need a math mathematical logical logical system that sticks by common sense. I think maybe we're missing, uh, miscommunicating. It's probably my fault because I'm not saying it in the right way. But look, here's the, my main complaint uh, with respect to what is happening right now. Yeah. So it, it seems like, with respect to you, um, you're like more than willing to entertain these really far and out and crazy ideas as long yeah. as they're empirically motivated. But as soon as we bring in far out and crazy ideas that are um, not empirically motivated, but in fact motivated by uh, you know thinking about a priori considerations, then you yeah. balk and say that's too crazy for me. I mean, and maybe yeah. that's not what you're doing, but that's what that's what I see. That's why that's what it seems like to me um, right now. So I don't. Feel I mean, that sounds like, like some of the stuff I was on. throwing in. Yeah, well, maybe I'm throwing. So we talked about we talked about Kant, Richard. You know, yeah. in connection with your first episode, right? So, I don't see empirical motivation for something like transcendental idealism, right? That seems to me like, but I still think it's an interesting possibility, right? And it is pretty bizarre and far out, right, to think that uh, time and space are features of our way of experiencing 
the world rather than features of things in themselves. I think that's pretty interesting. It's on my map of possibilities. I also think about ways in which uh, you could at least kind of approach it a little bit empirically, but I don't think those ways are very decisive. But that's so. So then, but that's it. But but if that's good, then um, you can start from Kant and end up with two-valued logic. I mean, because if you like, if you really think that you know, you can do a priori deduce the kind of uh, structure of experience from uh, uh, just merely reflecting on what kind of possible experiences you could have, then yeah. uh, two-valued comes right out. In fact, that's one of that. It, <laughs> I'm not it, sure I, I buy all of Kant's positive arguments. So I'm just saying it's in the space of possibilities for me rather than than that it's the truth, right? I'm not saying I'm a content. Right. So why, right. so why P, why then, if, I was, if it's not Eric that was balking at this, then why are yeah. you balking at empirically motivated craziness but not rationally motivated craziness? Well, you know, earlier um, I was, we were talking about, uh, we didn't call it a, 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 a conservative principle, but I, I, uh, I do respect a kind of conservative principle whereby you don't violate common sense too rapidly. And um, I have a similar kind of principle about science. Insofar as I believe in weird things like unobservable entities or fields or something like that, they've had to they have had to earn their keep. This is this is ultimately grounded in this principle of uh, this kind of conservative principle. It's like you know first uh, you know what do, what do I believe? It's like the commonsensical stuff. I, b I believe that you know the table is solid, and I'm only going to believe that it's mostly empty space if if I'm forced, um, in a way that uh, you know. So for example, um, it. It's also part of common sense that, that I care about observation and experiment and predictions. So someone comes up with some observations and experiments and predictions and a whole system of them that lead to ultimately like the atomic theory of matter that says that the table is mostly made out of empty space. And now I will be begrudgingly uh, go along with it. I'll say, okay, all right, it's, it's mostly empty space. Um, so why science, isn't the same thing true for the rational stuff? I, I, I don't see. I don't see that it, it has earned its keep. If it's going to earn its keep, it's either going to be directly uh, in the way that science did it, or has, it's going to piggyback on science. Has the Pythagorean yeah. theorem earned its keep? I would say so. Okay. Well, from the Pythagorean theorem, you can basically, with a couple steps, prove the irrationality of the uh, square root of two. Yes, you can. Right. So. Uh, that's okay with you? Yeah. That, 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 that the, uh, that Although, the length I don't, of... I don't know if you could say, I'm tensing up. I'm like, oh, uh, <laughs> oh I know uh, where he's going to go with this. The length of the hypotenuse of any uh, right triangle is um, infinitely long. Yeah, so the, the, the diagonal of a unit square uh, is going to be something that you can't express in terms of a, of a ratio of whole numbers. That's right. A non-repeating infinite. Decimal. Whoa! What? No. <laughs> Why was it good enough to say that? Common sense tells me that that can't happen. <laughs> uh, uh, what? You gotta, you gotta earn it. You want to talk about an infinite number of uh, diddly doodads? You gotta earn it. It did uh, earn it, though. I mean, how? I was granted. So, but so look, how come I can't tell the same story about the history of mathematics that you told about the history of empirical science? You know. Uh, you start. You start with people like Thales, 
and Thales is over there allegedly <clears throat> measuring shadows and determining heights of pyramids and such. Yes. And that seems interesting because he's, a pl he's thinking about an abstract uh, uh, tr right triangle, which does not exist in nature. Um, if you're looking at the pyramid and you're thinking about the line um, that comes from the top of the pyramid down to the ground, forming a right angle with the ground and an imaginary line stretching out, that's, that thing isn't there. That's a mathematical structure that he's picturing right there. So, okay, and then you get some weird results from that, eventually think, finding yep. out that this number's irrational. We don't really know how to understand that um, uh, at that time, but, you know, eventually we tool along, and you get people like Hilbert, and you get people like Cantor, and Cantor did, went a long way towards starting us to begin to understand the, what's going on with stuff like that. Um, trying to figure out what's going on with the infinite, and so now you're going to say, no, 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 that you know, maybe you know that that's where we went off the rails. But but why isn't that progress? I mean, that's the way mathematicians think about it. <laughs> that now they understand the infinite, and they understand it so much better. They have the axioms for it, and in fact, then you get the Gödel, and Gödel's good. Oh my God, there's large cardinal axioms and axioms and large infinite sequences, and okay. Uh, I mean, I was just reading a, a, something by Gödel about this, and he he said, I forget exactly what he says, but he says, uh, you know, he was kind of a weird dude towards it. He's kind of a weird dude altogether, but uh, towards the end of his life, especially. But he says, like, look, you know, the the structure of this infinite sequence that Cantor talks about is just like so real to him. It, you get the picture that he just like, yeah, feels like it's directly accessible. And he says, well, look, you know, and. and I feel like it's perfect and it's nicely structured, and then so how could reality not be perfect and nicely structured like that as well? How come? And you know, you don't get that feeling. You know, maybe Eric doesn't either, and maybe even I don't. I kind of, I kind of feel like I see it through the fog, though. I do, I do feel that way. <laughs> I feel like I see the structure of that, of this, of the Cantor series, uh, like off in a distance, vaguely, and I don't. It's not right there, and I can't do yeah. things with it like they can and climb around in it. But I feel like, yeah, why, like, why isn't that just as real? And why aren't they talking about something and making progress on this thing um, in just the same way that you described? Now, you don't want to take that as seriously because maybe you don't see it in the same way they do. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like, you know, we don't see it in the same way that they And I'm one of them too, but I, I feel like I see enough of it to feel like that I, I understand a little bit of what they're saying. And so why don't you – why – is it just that you don't feel the pull of it and that's it? That's, I mean, and that's part just, of it. I mean, I'm – I'm I'm tempted in two directions right now, Richard. One one direction uh, I'm tempted to say is, um, you know what? Uh, for now, let's say Cantor in infinitary mathematics and the real analysis of calculus. That's cool. That that has earned its keep. But um, this other stuff, this modal logic stuff, hasn't. That's one one direction I'm tempted. In the other direction, I'm tempted is like say, no, I'm sorry, like. Um, a lot of the stuff that Cantor wants to say is excessive, that we don't really need it. And part of what is motivating Cantor is, I think, well described in the, the words that you just used, that he feels a certain kind of pull. Uh, Cantor and, and Gödel, you know, they, um, they conceive certain things, and uh, their imagination is grabbed in a certain way. For them, that's a criterion of existence. Uh, there's this Cantor quote about, like, you know, look, if I can conceive of it, and uh, no one has proven that there's any kind of contradiction in its being, then therefore it exists. And to me, that just seems like really well, that's, that's how you decide like where things exist. Stuff, right? That's like the Williamson stuff. 
Well, I would, I, I, uh, you know, so if I, if I, so come to the one temptation and say, okay, fine, Cantor and, uh, uh, you know, the foundations of, of, of calculus, they have earned their keep because of the way in which they work with physics. Uh, okay, now show me, like, how um, the Williamson stuff is similar to that. Like, how, how, how does that get in? Because Cantor because, well, doesn't talk about modal logic. Uh, well, he assumes it, though. I mean, he thinks it's possible to prove to prove that there are uh, ever greater, um, higher orders of infinite amounts of things. I'm not saying that right, well, but Barclay think rocks exist too. I mean, you, you need to say more. Just because someone you know uses the word possibly doesn't mean that they are taking on um, a whole host of uh, what I presume Williamson wants to take on. Well, no, they're taking on commitment to talk about modality as being important, and if, you know. So how do, how do you even how do you even talk about logic at all or, or mathematics at all without bringing in necessity and possibility? Like, what is validity? Validity equals, by definition, that is impossible for the premises to be true and the conclusion to be false. So how do you even get in going in any kind of interesting formal system without bringing? I mean, Aristotle is the first guy to notice this sort of. You know that as soon as you start talking about logic, you have to to even make it make sense. You have to bring in words like necessary, possible. Um, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about Cantor, but I mean, how how strong of a commitment does he make about, about modality? I was, or I don't know, I don't think he. I mean, I, I was saying that you have, you would have to assume that. Um, but why wouldn't it suffice for him? I mean, in order to do a proof of anything, you have to assume non-contradiction is is important, um, or you have to be explicit about what rules you're using and which contradictions get allowed to be proved. So if you're a hard, if you're a um, but let me put it like this. So maybe you know th there's a certain way of talking about uh, poss possibility. You know, you take you take possible possible possibility talk, and you just say like, you know, look, uh, what I what I, for for my following purposes, what I what I mean is uh, it's not contradictory. So we could we could divide the propositions into the ones that are contradictory and the ones that aren't contradictory. And um, okay, now we go and we do our mathematics or we do our first order logic or whatever. But we, what we aren't doing is is Introducing formulae where we have a we have a, a pair of sentential operators, which are the modal operators, and we introduce a formal uh, rule uh, or system of rules governing the use of those operators. We're just doing this thing that's that's informal, uh, you know, between us mathematicians. We're just gonna, you know, when when I say to you, Richard, uh, possibly, I just mean uh, the formula won't itself be a, a syntactical contradiction and then we proceed from there so we're not doing modal logic because we're well, you not still might be assuming it I mean I didn't say you were doing it I said that the principles that you're operating on only get their legitimacy by being related to uh, things can which can be stated in terms of modal axioms so you why do you get to assume that I mean there's a lot of stuff that you know the, that you, we would have to explicitly state if you want to be really clear about it but why do you get to make any kind of it, it, if someone were to challenge you in any given mood, you'd have to appeal to what would have happened if it, uh, and that's the way a lot of proofs go. Here's a universe that has this in it now. Okay, well it can't be any other way given the way we set it up. Uh, well, why can't it be another? Well, way? I mean, I, I, but maybe they're not actually committed in terms of what they're going to be explicitly committed to on paper in terms of their uh, the, their syntax and semantics. They're not committed to anything beyond the, the first order logic of how uh, negation works. I guess I was making the claim that uh, 
they're committed to it in the definite in the in the higher order in in the in the not the uh, object language but the meta language. They're committed to it in the definitions of validity and entailment and in inference. What what implies what? Um, that all of those metalogical definitions, which you have to then use in your first order logic, uh, rely on concepts of possibility and necessity in such a way that if you wanted to legitimate them, you would have to appeal to some modal logic. That seems to me. But, but so first order, first order, uh, first order uh, predicate logic is not modal logic. No, but the claim do, that any you can do a meta logic of 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 the first order uh, logic. And that meta logic need not itself be modal logic. But but but, but Pete, yes, first order logic is not modal logic. But the claim that it is necessarily the case that true premises and false conclusion is not allowable is a is a claim that has to be expressed in terms of modal logic. It's a it's the higher order definitions. It's what validity is that it brings in the concept of necessity. Well, I don't know that you have to define the validity that way. Well, how else would you define it? We could. Uh, is it going to be counterfactual? Because remember, so the, I, I'm working with this idea, and you know what? Maybe you guys don't agree, but so I, I like this idea, and I don't really believe this either. I just think that's funny. You guys don't think that you're <laughs> resisting it, uh, to be honest with you. But so someone like Williamson makes the following claim that when we reason counterfactually, like if this were the case, that would be the case, or if this had been that way, that would be that way, which we do all the time, reasoning about simple systems and the way that they're set up. In fact, when Pete and I were talking about computation, in one of the previous episodes, I pointed out that I think it's an interesting discovery from from the work of David Chalmers that in order to talk about computations seriously at all, you have to bring in counterfactuals. So that seems important to me. It's not just what the system does right now, but what the system would do if it had been in a different state. Would it go into that? so the counterfactuals come in yeah. and do work? But then that's the first step. The second step is oh, and when we reason counterfactually we are employing um, the very same kinds of uh, abilities and skills which we use when we reason about modality. So that's the Williamson move. It's not exactly the same as far as I, I mean, I'm not, I haven't read him very carefully on this, but it's not exactly the same, he says, but you're employing the same ability. So uh, I guess you could put the claim like this. If you end up with the abilities to think about counterfactuals, then you thereby also have the abilities to think about modality. And so if something like that is right, then if counterfactuals are hooked up nicely to the world, which they are, um, then modality gets its credentials from employing the same kinds of reliable processes which let us think about the way the world works all the time. By the way, if you read Kripke, this is almost exactly like the kinds of stuff that he says. Um, is that, look, you know, I'm not talking about things you see through a telescope. I'm merely saying that we can think about ways the world would turn out. Like if I roll a dice, if it will comes up a one, I, it's easy for me to see that it, it could have been a three, and that's not a, that's not magic. That's not a mystery. There's some so ability. I don't, wanna, I, I don't wanna speak for Pete, but I don't have any problem with any of that, right? I think we use counterfactual and modal thinking all the time, and that they're intimately related, and that you can say things uh, which are true uh, counterfactually, and you can make mistakes about what's counterfactually uh, the case, but I don't know that it follows from that that there's one right best way or that all modal claims uh, have no, no, no a particular truth that, value, right? But I don't see, if you say, okay, well, here's one way of doing it. Here's one way if you wanted to kind of cut it up into a formal system. Here's one way to do it. Or here's another way to do it, right, if you wanted to cut it up into a formal system, right? 
once you have some kind of pluralism about that, I just I'm not sure how you get a whole lot of philosophical juice about how like many universes there are. Uh, the, the, so you can cut up stuff you will as as any way you like. That's a trick yeah. that we can do. But the but the yeah. thing is that when we reason about counterfactuals, we're not doing that. We're doing something else. So when yeah. you have when you have right. a six-sided die die in your hand, and you throw it, and it comes up four, and you reason about how it could have been a three or a two or whatever, yeah. um, you're not just arbitrarily slicing stuff up. There's no formal. There's not. That's so. You know, the claim is whatever whatever processes are actually being occurring in your mind right now, which allow you to truthfully track the states that could have been obtaining, which are not. Whatever's going on, those are reliable. They're important for tracking the world, and they're the same kinds of things you use when you think about what's possible and what's necessary. Yeah, I agree with all and that. Then, and then, if the best way to formalize that is in a particular form That's of system... That's where I don't agree. Well, see, but you haven't given any evidence. You just said, I don't think there is a best way to formalize that. Right. But I keep so, saying... I mean, we're talking about a book that I haven't read. Hey, hey, you guys. <laughs> I can't be an expert on it, but yeah, go ahead. I, I need a 30-second break. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can talk without me, but I need 30 seconds. What are you going to do? Uh... <laughs> well, should we, should we stop this session and start a new session 30 seconds from now? Because I need some water, too. Well, I think but we I should just we... leave it rolling, because I, I need to wrap it up anyway, but I don't know if I can... Uh... Well, we didn't even... I thought we were going to talk about biologism. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you guys give me 30 seconds? Sure, I'll take 30 seconds, too. Yeah, don't don't push any buttons or anything like that. Now listen, cadet. I've got a job for you. See this button? Don't touch it! It's the history eraser button, you fool! So what'll happen? That's just it. We don't know. Maybe something bad. Maybe something good. I guess we'll never know. Because you're going to guard it. You won't touch it, will you? Captain's Log, Pete Mandic reporting. The bad news is, somebody pressed the history eraser button. It could have been Eric Schwitzgable. It could have been Richard Brown. Hell, it could have even been me, for all I know. But I do know that causal efficacy supervenes on temporal locality, so it'll be just like it never happened. I also know that we're definitely having Eric Schwitzgable back for a future episode. I know further that you can learn more about this podcast and gobble up all sorts of surplus content by going to our website at spacetimemind.com, where you'll find blog posts, music videos, and lots of other stuff. Please rate us on iTunes, and please follow us on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. As always, music featured in these episodes is provided by our band, Quiet Karate Reflex. Until next time, this is Pete Mandic saying, see you in space time. Space time. Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld.
Time. Mind. 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 People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind, 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 mind